today, I feel like the world is as polarized as it's ever been, whether it's on climate change or the pandemic or inequality or economic uh, uncertainty. It just feels that there's an us versus them. And I think that we need to move from us versus them to us versus the problem. And I think everyone agrees that we want a, a clean, sustainable, better world for our children than the world that we inherited. It's really about how do we get there. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Inner Wealth, the Forbes Ignite podcast. I'm your host, Nicole Kakal, CEO of Forbes Ignite. And every week I'll be sharing with you my conversations with unique, creative, and innovative people across all different industries. These are people who are intellectually curious explorers who are also redefining what it means to be successful today. From personal to professional, we cover it all to understand what drives our guests to blaze their own trails and create nimble solutions within the industries that touch each of our lives. Our guest today is Phil DeLuna. Phil is a director at the National Research Council of Canada, among many other hats that he wears. I really admire him and his work because he's so great at cross-pollinating ideas from the energy sector to other disciplines. Plus, he's such an incredible force in harnessing technology to lower the carbon footprint on our planet. This is just one of the many initiatives that he's working on as Phil is an entrepreneur at heart. We talk about our family's shared experiences as immigrants when it comes to being Filipino entrepreneurs in North America. We also talk about his vision for a more empathetic society when it comes to addressing climate change and so much more. I know you're going to love what he has to say. Here's our chat. Hey, Phil, how's it going? Thanks so much for joining me. Yeah, it's going well. Thank you for having me. So it's been it's been a minute since the last time we spoke, but I feel like every time we have a chance to talk, there's always something new that I learn. And I thought it's just natural progression that you should definitely have a conversation with me on a podcast. So it's just long overdue, but I'm so happy that you're here. Thank you. I, I, I love podcasts. I listen to podcasts every day and uh, <laughs> I'm really excited to be a part of this one. Yeah. Just out of curiosity, what are some of your favorite podcasts that you listen to? Oh, I, I, my, my favorite podcast that I listen to daily is a podcast called Front Burner. It's by uh, CBC and the host, her name is Jamie Poisson. She's amazing. I have like a little crush on her and I don't even know what she looks like, but she's really great. Uh, and it, it just kind of goes over the, the latest and greatest um, news item of the day. I'm always really interested in hearing what other colleagues and peers listen to because there's so much out there. There's so much great stuff that's out there. And so I'm always, I always like to get a mini curated list of podcasts to listen to as well. But yeah, I just want to kick things off and start off with from one Filipino to another. I know that a lot of people would be really interested in hearing about your journey to Toronto. Are you originally from Toronto, by the way? No, no, I'm not. No, I'm not. So maybe, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll give my journey. And it all begins a long time ago in the year of 1991, where I was born. <laughs> but my, my parents, both of which are Filipino, they moved to Taiwan for work. Like many Filipino people do, they leave abroad to work. And uh, surprise, I was born. They were around my age. Uh, and they always knew they wanted to come to North America. So I, I moved to Canada when I was five years old. And I moved actually to a city called uh, Windsor, Windsor, Ontario, which is right on the border of uh, Detroit, right on the U.S.-Canada border. Um, really, you can see Detroit out, out your window. And it's an automotive city because it's so dependent and so integrated with uh, Detroit, which is, of course, the automotive powerhouse of the world. 
and and growing up, my my parents, my dad, well, he was an engineer in 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 the Philippines. When he moved to Canada, he worked in in the factory uh, in the in the car factory for Ford. Um, and I, I grew up. We didn't really you know have much money growing up, being an immigrant to a new country, trying to adjust to a North American culture. And uh, in, in, for anyone who knows the, the automotive sector, in 2008, 2009, there was a bit of a downturn and a, a lot of these plants actually closed down. So I kind of lived through that experience um, and uh, I, I went to school at the, at the University of Windsor in, in chemistry. And then I did a master's at the University of Ottawa and then a PhD at the University of Toronto. And that's how I ended up at Toronto. Yeah, I can, I'm sure we'll talk all about the things I've been up to since. <laughs> yeah, no, that, that's amazing. That's incredible. And so that's how you ended up in Toronto. So I knew, I knew that you were based out of Toronto right now, but you weren't always based there previously. So that's really fascinating. And I know that you're working on a lot of different projects right now. And I'd love to hear about the project that you're working on in the agricultural sector. That's something that I feel like doesn't get talked about enough. And there's a lot of really great innovations happening specifically around different policies and barriers people need to be talking about for underrepresented people. So I'd love for you to speak about that. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm currently engaged in this program called Action Canada, and it's a public policy accelerator program. The concept is you bring together a group of 15 mid-early career leaders and you get them pointed towards some sort of public policy topic or area. This year's theme is the future of work. And my task force team of five are focused on the future of work in agriculture. And the idea of this program is that you go travel to different cities and different locations in Canada. Of course, because of this year in a pandemic, most of it has been virtual. But I did have the opportunity to travel to, to Vancouver and visit some, some farms there. And our group is tackling specifically looking at how can we increase representation in the agricultural sector in traditionally underrepresented groups. So specifically uh, immigrants, uh, visible minorities, indigenous peoples, uh, and women. Uh, and there's a few reasons why we're looking at this. One, agriculture, it, you know, it's, it literally feeds us. So it's such an important and crucial piece to not only our economy, but our society. And what's interesting about this space is that there's a big issue right now with secession planning. Lots of farmers are getting older and lots of young people don't necessarily want to do farm work. It's a, it's a hard job. And you're starting to see more of this sort of rural and urban uh, divide. Uh, one thing that we're looking at is how can you lower the barrier of new entrants into farming? For example, uh, facilitating access to land, access to capital, access to knowledge and access to labor. So that's one of the projects that I'm working on. Um, it's a passion project for me, but it's, it's a lot of fun. Yeah, I think it's really interesting that you've spoken about the different, different pathways and access to resources, because I, again, I feel like this isn't talked about enough. And you working in the energy sector, actually, this is actually how I met you, um, working within the energy sector and making a contribution to the agricultural sector is only a natural progression for you. It just makes sense because they're interconnected in so many different ways. Yeah, so my, my background, a, a little bit about what I do. My main job, I serve as director for the Materials for Clean Fuels Challenge Program at the National Research Council of Canada, which is the government of Canada's research and technology organization. 
We own and operate 22 national labs across the country, and I oversee a seven-year, $57 million collaborative program focused on developing disruptive technologies to decarbonize Canada. Three main thrusts, uh, CO2 conversion, clean hydrogen production, and artificial intelligence for materials discovery. Now, energy and agriculture are intricately linked uh, in many ways. Often when people work in one space, uh, they focus on that one space, but, and I know you're a huge fan of this, we have to take a, a systems level thinking approach and be holistic around how the impacts of one sector impacts another. I'll give you an example. What a lot of people don't know is that the agricultural sector actually contributes a large amount of CO2 emissions uh, worldwide. Um, and a lot of that is due to farming practices through the tilling of soil, because soil itself can actually sequester and hold CO2. And every time that you till the soil, you're liberating that's, that, the carbon from the ground and it gets into the atmosphere, for example. Uh, another example is that, is that cows, um, there are a lot of cows in the world and um, they burp a lot. <laughs> and so they actually produce a lot of um, biogenic methane which uh, is a form of a, a GHG emission. So these sectors are, are, are intricately linked and they all really boil down to the ways with which we as a society promote our quality of life. And for the last century or so, we've done so on the backs really of fossil fuels. And so my job, whether that's in energy or whether that's trying to explore things more in the agricultural sector, is how do we transform these systems to be more sustainable so that we can continue to have economic growth and increase our quality of living while also doing so without emitting CO2. I love hearing so much about your work because like I said earlier, this is actually how we met when we were talking about how to increase electric vehicle adoption. And you definitely had so many contributions to that session. And I can't thank you enough again for doing that. Another thing that I learned about you is that you're actually um, working on, well, I know you were talking about not just access to resources, but also failing well or embracing failure in a way where it's really informed your entrepreneurial journey. So I'd love for you to speak more about that. Sure. Um, and maybe this continues along sort of my journey. And I, I speak a lot on the topic of um, sort of making the most out of th these young years. And one of the things that I always tell people is to not be afraid to fail because when, and you know, you hear this stuff all the time and it can be very esoteric and, and it sounds nice, but I like to give examples from my life and, and, and I'll give an example now. Every sort of pivotal moment I, I look back on my career and my life, there was a piece of that could be, that could be construed as a failure. For example, I was never really a good student. You know, you would think, oh, this guy, he has a PhD and he works at, he's a director of a national lab. He must have been a good student. Actually, no. I, in high school and stuff, I, I got good grades and I didn't really have to try that hard. But when I went to undergrad, um, I, I was more busy trying to make friends and go out and to, to bars than I was in studying. And so my grades were actually kind of like C plus, B minus average. It was only when I discovered research that I, my marks started to turn around and I, I found sort of a purpose. And when I, in undergrad, I actually had went to a bunch of professors and asked them if I could just volunteer to do research for them. Uh, typically, you can get paid to do this, but I just wanted to volunteer and say, hey, like, I know my marks aren't good, but I at least want to try. And I went through three professors at my university who all said no. And it was only the fourth professor who said, sure, why not? Let's give it a try. And the way that I kind of convinced him is I gave him a resume that was formatted like a Wikipedia page. 
to show my creativity. <laughs> and I kind of had like, it was me and it was like my interests and all these things. I didn't have any, any actual knowledge or value at that point, but I wanted to show something different. Mm-hmm. So I'd failed enough and I thought, let's try something new. And, and so when that started, it really got me going. I started publishing papers. I went to, I, I went to the University of Ottawa for my master's and got scholarships there. And then again, in, during my master's, I had a relationship with my supervisor where the way it works in Canada is you do a master's and then after a year, you convert to a PhD. Uh, that's typically the typical sort of academic path. I had a conversation with my master's supervisor a year into my master's, and he, he basically said, I don't think you're good enough to do a PhD in my group. And, and keep in mind, at that point, I had actually published a couple of papers and was leading research projects. But really, it was just our, our we just didn't vibe. Like, the way that he saw the world and his perspectives and what he valued were just not the same in the way that I did. And, and so I, that was a big failure in my eyes and I had ta- thought long and hard about is this really what I want to do and I decided yes so, screw him I'm going to go apply to every better university in the world and I got accepted to University uh, College London and, and University of Chicago University of Toronto and McGill and they ended up going to, uh, to University of Toronto and it was there where uh, again the, the, the lesson I learned from that failure was it's so important to pick your mentors and to pick people who are invested in your success too, who give you the space and the opportunity to grow and aren't afraid to let you try new things. So that was what I was solving for when I, when I picked my PhD and I went to the University of Toronto. While I was there, I, was, I had the, the, the luck and really the, an amazing blessing to be mentored by this prolific and just amazing professor who gave me all the opportunities in the world. And keep in mind, so I... I finished my PhD in three and a half years and every summer I went away. So I was really only there for like two and a half years. And the first summer he let me go to IBM and I did an internship at the TJ Watson Research Center where I was working on um, biomolecule sensing for point of care applications so that you could test COVID-19 on the spot rather than waiting for um, a, a day or two to get results. Uh, the next summer, I went to University of California, Berkeley, and UC and the Lawrence Berkeley National Labs, where I was leading projects on on catalysts for CO2 conversion, which is what I was doing in my PhD. And then the, the year after that, I went to um, the Toyota Research Institute, where I was working on artificial intelligence for batteries and fuel cells. And my professor gave me the opportunity to do all those things. In addition to that, I was helping to lead a team in the CarbonX Prize which is a $20 million competition to capture and convert the most CO2. And it was around the third year of my PhD or the second year where I had a conversation with my partner because I always thought I was going to be a, a, a professor. And my partner, she's an operating room nurse at Sickett Hospital, which is the children's hospital here in Toronto. She had just started her career there. Her family's here in Toronto. And she wanted to stay in the city. And if you're going to, for people who don't know, who are listening out there, if you're going to go become a professor, you have to go do a postdoc somewhere and then travel the world and you never really know where you end up. That's the nature of the academic job market. And I decided in that moment that I wanted to be with her more than I wanted to be a professor. And so here I was thinking about what am I going to do? I had this opportunity with the sex prize. So I thought I'm going to go start a company and I'm going to go make this, I'm going to go be the next uh, Canadian Elon Musk. And so I went to my professor and I um, 
was incubating this this company, starting this venture, got into Creative Destruction Lab, which is a, a startup accelerator. And uh, there was a, a little issue, which was the intellectual property was actually owned by an oil and gas company. They pre-purchased the IP in order uh, for our research because they were funding our research. But I was able to negotiate like a royalty-free, non-exclusive license with that VP. And I, I was at the point where I, you know, it was around this time that actually my name came out on the top 30 under 30 Forbes list because of the work I was doing in the Carbon X Prize. And I was so set on starting this company uh, and then this uh, this position at the NRC came out and I applied to it, not thinking I would get it because I thought I'm not a 55-year-old white guy. <laughs> so I, I applied and lo and behold, I got the position and I really only applied to put pressure on my professor to come into the startup. So I went to him and I said, hey, I really want to start this company, but I now have this opportunity to go lead this amazing program at the government. What do you think? And he said, you know, I think you should start, you should go work at the government because the technology is too early. And in that moment, I felt like that was a failure. I recognized that it takes more than just good technology to make a good company. You need customers, you need a market. It's all about timing. What's the regulation? Where are you going to sell it to? What's the supply chain? Where's it going to be? How much is it going to cost? And all of these things I felt at that moment that I could develop and learn and figure out and be the one to, to, to lead that while the world caught up but it wasn't in the cards. And so, you know, that experience taught me so much about what it takes to start a company and what it means for entrepreneurship that that's informed my job today, where now I'm on the other side of that coin, rather than being in a startup position where you can be as agile and fast as you want, but you're broke. I now lead this amazing program with millions of dollars behind me in the government, but it takes a little bit of time to move that ship. So it, anyway, that, I, I know that you asked, how has failure shaped my, my story? But, uh, and I, I probably spoke for far too long. But at every moment, <laughs> every moment there, you know, it, every failure was a lesson and every lesson l- l- led to an outcome that has brought me to a better place. No, that's beautiful. I mean, honestly, that is such a beautiful story because you, it all started with purpose. I would have never imagined that you were a poor student. <laughs> And even then, I I don't think people would define getting like C's or like B minuses or anything like that necessarily being poor. So I would, I still commend you on the, the progress that you made and for you finding your purpose, because I think that all leads to really just finding your tribe. I know I speak about this a lot in some of the other podcasts too, that who you surround yourself with is so important because that's going to make or break what if you think about it, these are the people that you are conversing with 80% of your time and they are going to shape the way that you think. It's great that you found the right types of people to surround yourself with to really help guide you on your journey and into where you are today. The amazing thing is that you are just, I know we were talking about it like, oh yes, like you've made it, but you still have such an amazing path ahead of you there's just so much in store for you. So I'm really excited for you personally. Thank you. Thanks so much. And I, you know, I couldn't agree more about, you know, finding your tribe. And I've always been a strong believer that you are a culmination of the people around you. Absolutely. And I've just been so blessed to have um, a community um, of friends and, and, and my partner and my family to be there um, to, to, I would not be where I am today if it wasn't for the people who supported me and who believed in me. And I think a lot of successful people 
they all recognize that and they all, in their deep, deepest of their hearts, they know that's true. And anyone who says that they got to where they are only and entirely by themselves, uh, I think they're lying. No, exactly. <laughs> or they're leaving something out. Exactly. Leaving something out. So what I, what I love the most about speaking with you is how you're the perfect trifecta. You are probably one of the most self-aware people that I know just based on speaking with you. And you have this really amazing self-aware approach to entrepreneurship and you have such a huge capacity for resilience too. You're incredibly resilient. So you're the trifecta. And when it comes to entrepreneurship and when it comes to empathy as well, those, those are some really key qualities that you need to have. They're non-negotiable with trying to understand the, the market that you're designing for, the, the people that you're trying to serve. It all really boils down to just really having that empathetic, self-aware mindset. And I know that um, you were speaking about that on your TED Talk. Yes, exactly. I, 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 my TED Talk that I'm, I'm going to be giving for TEDx Toronto in January is all about ways to look at how we can solve climate change, not only from a technology perspective, but also how to address this issue. The, way I, the reason I say that is it feels like today the world is just more divided and polarized than ever. And whether that's climate change or, or the pandemic or economic inequality, whatever that is, people feel, and I feel, like it's an us versus them mentality. When I really believe we need to move to an us versus the problem. And, and I'll give you an example. I, I know a lot of people who are passionate about climate change and, and clean energy who think that people who work in oil and gas are evil or that it's a terrible industry and all these things. And I used to think that way a long, long time ago, but that's just, that's just not true. The more that I've worked in my current job and the more that I've interacted with these people, you know, I see my dad who was working in the automotive sector just trying to provide for his family. I see him in the oil and gas workers out, out west or in, in Alberta or in, in, other, in other places in the world. You know, these are people who just want to provide for their family and have, find a purpose and dignified work. And so when I think about, you know, what is needed to, to really tackle climate change, it is empathy. It's about coming together and understanding the people and the person that's across from you because I think we all want the same thing at the end of the day. We all want a sustainable future. We all want our children to be in a, live in a world that is better than the world that we lived in. It's just about finding a way to get there together. Exactly. Finding a way to do this collaboratively rather than in silos, as we all have come to know all too well, unfortunately. And the thing that I really like about the work that you're doing is that it involves a lot of interdisciplinary thinking. And if you know me, that's something that I really, I, I'm a huge fan of. And so when you're speaking about empathy, very specific to climate change, you're talking about involving a lot of different stakeholders, understanding and really getting into not just the psyche, but the behavioral motivations of everyone involved. I would love to know, what's, what are you most excited about within the next five years or so? Where do you really see this going? If, if everything were to go your way, and if people were all the more empathetic, specifically when they're talking about climate change too, what is your hope for the future in the next five years? That's a really good question. I think that um, I'm, re I'm really, really excited and really hopeful for sort of the the generation that I'm a part of or sort of younger people finding their voice and advocating 
and bringing power through collective action and through collective communication. I think that young people are becoming more and more active in, on, from a political perspective uh, in, in terms of issues that matter today. And young people are, are so much more um, self-aware and in tune to the world around them. It's almost overwhelming, actually, when you think about the amount of information that is available. And the thing that I'm really excited about is this sort of cultural shift and this progressiveness that's happening from younger people and how they're changing the direction and the conversation around climate change and the tools to address climate change simply by having conversations at the dinner table. You know, a lot of the times when I hear from um, C-suite executives, it's not the latest report or some lecture or TED talk that changed their mind about climate change. It's having a conversation with their grandson or granddaughter at the table and seeing and hearing the concern that they have, that really drives these this whole set of people, the people in the C-suites, the people with power and at the decision-making table to make sound choices. And so to be more specific, I'm really excited about how there's a movement in sustainable finance and in capitalism to take the tools of capitalism and purpose and move them towards a more sustainable future. Um, I'll give you an example. There's something called the um, the Task Force for Climate Disclosure, which is all about disclosing the risk associated with climate, similar to how you would disclose financial risk and um, holding boards accountable to that, because you can't manage what you don't measure. So that's something that's really exciting. And on the clean energy side, I mean, all of the work that I do and all of the breakthroughs that we're seeing on science and technology, that's really, really exciting. And then on the policy side, I think more and more people are trying to break down these silos and listening to each other uh, from a multidisciplinary perspective. For example, you know, this, this podcast and the number of people you've brought together just shows the value in having different perspectives and voices speak to a topic. And more people are recognizing that. So, you know, for all of those reasons and more, I am optimistic. And I think in five years, we'll be in a much better place where we're really going to start seeing more action from government and more commitments, as well as significant actions on the public and private in, in reducing their GHG emissions and, and making a more sustainable society. I love that. So, Phil, I think we, we both have a lot more in common than we think. So not only are we both Filipino, obviously, but we also work in areas where there also isn't a lot of other Filipino people working in the same area as us. So I'd love for you to speak about your experiences around that. And this is something that's obviously near and dear to my heart. Uh, I think that oftentimes when you have a new immigrant population coming into a country, it's very difficult to break into levels of society where there are not already existing examples. So it, to be the first or to be a trailblazer, I'll give you an example. I'm the first person in my family to have an advanced degree, a PhD. I, I, the only Filipino person I know of in my organization um, at, at this level and uh, one of the only ones, period. And to, to me, it's really important to, as you know, us, this new generation of Filipino people who are growing up in North America, who are making a way for ourselves to be an example to others. I mean, you know the stereotypes, right? Filipino people are hardworking. Filipino people um, have great work ethic and are just caring and empathetic and all these things. And all that's all true. 
when do you see the the stereotype or the or or the association of Filipino people in management positions or Filipino people being presidents and CEOs and doctors and politicians? It's very rare, and I think it, time it it will take time for that to happen. But I'm very passionate myself about being that representation and. So that in the future that I grow up in, which will be a more diverse and rich and full future, that there are other people that have an example to look forward, um, Filipino people or not Filipino people, people of color and immigrants, whatever it may be, that can say, even coming to a country and not knowing much about it or having much there, having no support structure, having no extended family, you can still make it. And I think that's an important message, and it's an important message to to not only Filipino people, but to everyone who who is coming somewhere and making a life for themselves for the first time. So I don't know if you felt this way before. You probably have, and there's <laughs> I've been meaning to ask you about this, but honestly, it's not just the fact that we don't see a lot of other Filipinos in in the fields that we work in, but there's just not a lot of a lot of other Filipinos in business. And again, I don't know if you felt this way, but I almost feel like in our culture, being an entrepreneur or just entrepreneurialism is highly discouraged. Yeah, I, it's so true. And I'll give you an example. Um, I think it has to, a lot to do with sort of risk aversion in our culture. And my mom, when I was going off to do my, my master's, she was like, are you sure you want to go do your master's? Why don't you just stay here in Windsor and work at like the, the city and working like as a chemistry person at the water treatment plant or something. And I said, no, I want to do bigger, better things. I think, you know, it's all about definition of success. And to my parents, for them, owning a home, moving to North America, having a mortgage, raising their kids in uh, uh, Canada is success. So why would you need or want anything more than that? And I think for us, for you and me, we're, we want more than that because we, we're, we're benefiting from the sacrifices that our parents made. And I, I do think that you're right. It is partially discouraged because it's all about risk. And in, I feel, at least in Filipino culture, it's better to be safer and it's better to be stable than it is to necessarily risk for high reward. Right, exactly. It's all it's all really about that stability, more or less. But I love what you said there about the definition of success. And you and me, together with a lot of other, every other Filipino entrepreneur that's out there, is redefining what that success means. And so that's also the tagline for Forbes Ignite, by the way. <laughs> so shameless plug there. But that's something that I think about a lot. I love that. I, I love that. So what we mean by redefining success is, again, it comes back to the value system that we were talking about before. What do you value? When it comes to wealth, we're talking about the inner wealth of some an individual and what they collectively think about with the people that they care about the most. How are we helping one another? How are we helping each other advance and grow and become better versions of ourselves in ways that aren't always tied to monetary value? Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think it boils down to purpose over profit, right? Like for me, success is what's the biggest impact I can make on the world, positive impact, not what's the most money I can take from the world. What's not, it's more about what can I give, less about what can I take. 
Exactly. It's about what you can give rather than extracting from the world because the world doesn't owe us anything. And it's all about what are we doing to take care of the planet that we live in, the people that live in it, and the purpose that's bigger than any one of us that we're working toward. I feel like we have so much in common in that respect when we are looking toward that North Star, that higher purpose. I absolutely agree. And I would say, you know, maybe for the tagline of inner wealth, I would say, like, to me, inner wealth is all about using what you have to give back. And it really is inner wealth that you share with the world. Um, I think that's a beautiful, beautiful thing. And I wish more people would think about wealth in that way. I love that. Phil, it's been such a pleasure speaking with you. And I really hope we get to do this again very, very soon because I feel like we barely scratched the surface. So I want to thank you so much for joining me and we'll talk again soon. Thank you for having me. And it's, it's just been so much fun. Uh, I'm available anytime. That's it for this week's episode of Inner Wealth. I hope you enjoyed our conversation and that you'll join us next week as we continue to explore all the ways success is being redefined in our ever-changing world. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review our podcast on your favorite podcast app. And follow us on Instagram at Forbes Ignite for more thought-provoking content and opportunities to engage with us. I'm your host, Nicole Kakal. Thanks for joining us.